0: Come back a few decades past To a simpler time to be
1: That's right, everyone. Welcome back to Eighties High, the podcast that wakes up in the morning only to exclaim, "Those
0: aren't pillows!"
1: Oh god. I'm your host, Chris,
0: and I'm Ben. Are these your socks in the sink? And this is Eighties
1: High. Hi. Yeah. Go ahead and take your socks out of the sink if you're going to brush your teeth. Oh, <laughs> so gross. So Ooh, gross. Chills. So chills. Gross. Ben, it's great to see
0: and hear you again. Good to see you again. Happy No Shave November. There's no uh, mustaches. There's a lot that happens in November. There's mustaches.
1: There's turkeys. There's, there's turkeys. Stories of pilgrims. There's all sorts of things.
0: I have had a wonderfully Chris-heavy week. We played our monthly D and D campaign last night, which was delightful. Mm-hmm. We went to a concert. We went to with humans. Other humans. It was interesting. A lot it was of fun. It was a great concert. So awesome. So we we went and saw the Midnight. Which, yeah. if you're listening to this podcast and you love the '80s, go find the Midnight because Tribute Band is not right. But they like it's synthwave,
1: but it's got like an '80s retro vibe to it. If you love like '80s sax, oh boy, oh strapping, freaking ready. It's amazing '80s saxophone.
0: And opener and guest musicians Jupiter Winter was also a really cool band. They were fantastic. It was yeah. just
1: a wonderful experience musically. You know, the crowd was mostly good, but there were a few people I was not Ne'er thrilled to Wells. be around. But hey, it was open seating, so we got to just roam around that place till we found our perfect spot. We were like Goldilocks, looking for that seat that was
0: just
1: right. Just, just. we got we, did. It.
0: we totally found it. And then nearly two hours ago. You were one of the linchpins in the final step of completing a lifelong childhood dream of mine, <laughs> uh, helping me unload 600 pounds of replica dinosaur fossils that have sat in a friend's garage in Canada for 15 months with the border closing that we finally brought home Today, an even longer story. So thank you for helping me realize that I now own, replica at least, uh, dinosaur fossils. Which Way is to amazing. go, Ben.
1: You're a dino writer now. No,
0: yeah, right. Uh, wait, I, I can't do your request. Hour. I'll get those dinosaur fossils <laughs> as if it's the last thing I do. <laughs> Questar, you fool. I will get the dinosaur
1: bones and the fossils all of
0: myself. That's so perfect.
1: And now I have no voice for the rest of the episode. Right, and then you're toast. Worth it.
0: Anything else in homeroom you wanted to bring up? What's go- what's going on over on uh, that side of the microphone?
1: What I want to rewind, say, was three episodes. When we talked about 80s slasher films, I, in the interim from... I think the last time we recorded, picked up two movies from the discussion we had with guest host Mikey. Uh it was Black Christmas oh, yeah. and The Fun House. Oh. So I watched both of those and, and? they were good. I mean, Black Christmas was delightful as like that proto slasher. The Fun House was definitely very interesting. I thought it, you know, pretty well-done movie. Didn't like it quite as much. I also did end up picking up the remake of Friday the 13th. Eh, it's hit or miss. It's not great. It's not terrible. It's just kind of somewhere in the middle. And I rewatched several other movies that we had talked about that episode. Again, we were in the midst of Halloween at that time. So it was very delightful to get into that.
0: Black Christmas. How'd you feel about the house mom stashing booze all over the uh, sorority house?
1: I could have watched an entire movie about (laughs) her. I wanted her to live as long as possible because she was a freaking gem. I love that woman so much. She was great. Fantastic. She's She's my favorite part. And then also a follow-up to Thriller, I just want to say we had a listener shout-out from Aaron, who was on our – Coach Aaron from our episode on Miracle on Ice, who's like, tell Reagan that Baby Be Mine is a really good song. So I I passed a note to Reagan, and she's like, (laughs) look, I didn't say it was not a good song. I just don't remember it ever getting airtime. And I was like, that's fair. And I went and listened to it. It's actually a really good song. Like, I like it better than some of the other more well-known songs on the album. So if you (sighs) want to find a hidden gem from the Thriller album, check out Baby Be Mine. Definitely the uh, post-disco, I think, was one of the uh, descriptions of the music style. You get the post-disco from this song, definitely. It's really good.
0: That's cool. That's cool. I hope Reagan isn't shaking her head somewhere in shame that that we're th- loving this one over others. But
1: I mean, she'll roll her eyes at me as she always the, does. At the drop you of know, a hat. Because yeah, I'm me. So
0: <laughs> and that's her speed. It's all good. <laughs> and it's all good. Uh, speaking of speed,
1: yes, is that what we, we're watching today? That's '90s, buddy. That would.
0: Oh yeah, check us out ah. on our other podcast. Uh, no, we do have some traveling to do.
1: Before we do, much like before the airplane takes off, we need those sweet announcements. Ryer, too, so let's cue those now.
0: Ladies and gentlemen. Cowabunga 80s High, I'm California Corey, here to share today's totally tubular homeroom announcements. Like, you'd be a total spaz if you weren't following 80s High Podcast on Instagram and Twitter, buddy. Today's lunch will be overcooked hamburgers and mushy french fries. Whoa, bogus. Catch the waves by joining the 80s High email list. It's where like all the most bodacious babes are hanging out. Share memories, suggest topics, and like other stuff, man. Email 80's high podcast at gmail.com to join. That's 80S. After school today, cheer on the fightin' Mogwise in the surf competition against the most heinous Bayside High. Surfs up, have a bodacious day, party on Mogwise.
1: Alright, Ben, well this does seem excessive, but Let's board this plane for a short flight down the hall to history class to learn about today's topic, planes, trains, and automobiles. What do you say?
0: Ladies and gentlemen, please uh, return your tray tables to their upright and locked position and fasten your safety belts because we're flying with Steve Martin and John Candy.
1: (laughs) Well, much like the Wright brothers' first flight, that was a very brief but valuable journey. (laughs) We're in history class, Ben, to talk about the movie Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. So this is a 1987 American comedy film. It is written, it is produced, it is directed by the one, the only, Mr. John
0: Hughes. Wow, vertical chain integration. He's oh doing everything.
1: God. This guy's total vertical integration. Control freak is probably a great way to characterize <laughs> Mr. Hughes. It stars Steve Martin as Neil Page, a high-strung marketing executive. These 80s movies love their marketing folks. Oh, dude, we're, we're going
0: to get into this one.
1: Okay, For sure. right. Uh, and John Candy as Del Griffith, a good-hearted but annoying shower curtain ring salesman. And I can probably say he's the only person in all of movie history who sells shower curtain reeds. So that's a yeah, very right, unique, right. very unique. And uh, earrings, you know, which, which we can mention. You you know, he's he's he, a double-talented guy. He pivots. He pivots. And during this movie, they share a three-day odyssey of misadventures, trying to get Neil home to Chicago in time for Thanksgiving with his family. And as I mentioned, John Hughes, of course, is a powerhouse. He brought us so many of those classic movies from Mm. the 80s we love. We're talking National Lampoons. Mm -hmm. We're talking Uncle Buck, Mm -hmm. Home Alone, Pretty in Pink, 16 Candles, The Breakfast Club, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Mr. Mom, just to name a few.
0: Don't you forget about me. Don't, don't, don't.
1: don't. don't. Oh my gosh. So good. Uh, The inspiration for this movie came from a real life event John Hughes had when he was on an actual flight from New York to Chicago, and it got diverted to Wichita, Kansas, which is where our characters find themselves. And it took him five days to get home. After experiencing this hellish trip, Hughes manages to write the first 60 pages of the screenplay in... How long do you think it took him, Ben?
0: Uh, well, let's see. We talked about Thriller being shot in four days. Mm. So I'm going to say he did it in a weekend, a long weekend. He wrote 60 pages. Six hours. What? Six
1: hours. This Are you guy- kidding
0: me? is a machine. He
1: wrote the whole first draft of the screenplay in three days. Most of us
0: can't make Thanksgiving dinner in in under six hours. That's ridiculous. (laughs) It's
1: insane. And apparently at that time, his average writing time for a screenplay was three to five days, which if anyone is a writer and particularly of long form narrative like this, novels, novellas, screenplays, whatever, that is unfathomable. I. This guy's, like I said, a well-oiled machine. He's a powerhouse.
0: Listener slash co-guest host, Allison. Uh, You know, tweet at us, message us. What do you think about that time turnaround? (laughs) Just let us know. What do you think?
1: As I mentioned, a lot of credits go to Mr. Hughes, as well as Hughes Entertainment being the production company. Cinematographies by Donald Peterman. Editing done by Paul Hirsch. Music by Ira Newborn. And it's distributed by Paramount Pictures, releasing on November 25th, 1987. The movie is characterized as kind of a bittersweet farce. It's a balance of slapstick shenanigans and compassionate comedy, a heartfelt holiday classic, and a road movie meets buddy picture. And this is often, I won't say it's credited, but recognized as maybe one of the first movies that merged those two movie genres into one.
0: There's also another merging going on here, which is interesting. The, the movie that Hughes did right before this was National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, mm. which apparently is his first attempt at making a movie that could target both adults and kids, rather than like movies just about teenagers, like Pretty in Pink.
1: Breakfast Club, Breakfast Sixteen Club. Candles. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So this is like his second foray into a movie that is a broader audience than just kids. Another merging, if you will.
1: Right. Absolutely. The movie was filmed in 85 days, so almost three months. Wow. And apparently they had to keep moving the production because they weren't getting snow anywhere. So they had to kind of chase where the snow was for a lot of these scenes. I was reading that John Hughes was getting very grumpy about all of that. Again, I think his perfectionist control freak nature was coming out. But they do it, obviously. And it releases, as mentioned, November 25th. So which is probably right around Thanksgiving in 1987. That sounds like maybe the day before or the day after. I don't know. Uh, If only there were calendars where we could go look that up. Who who
0: (laughs) could know? Anybody's
1: guess. (laughs) Who's to say? Who's to say? Who's to say? So I mentioned the editor was Paul Hirsch. The original cut of this movie, Ben, did you see how long it is or do you want to hazard a guess? How long is the first cut? I did see
0: how long the first cut is. The first cut came in at a whopping three hours and 40 minutes. Ben, what
1: other movie is three hours and forty minutes to your immediate recollection? Lord of the Rings? Lord of the Rings movie. Yeah, exactly. For sure. right. That to me is a three hour forty. I don't even think Endgame, game, Avengers Endgame was that long. No, I don't
0: think Titanic was that long. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: So obviously they do a lot of editing, screen testing, and they get it cut down eventually to the hour and thirty-three minute theatrical release. But what's interesting is some of the trailers and promos for it have scenes that ended up getting cut out. Oh! And if you see the television version of the movie... There's a whole scene on the airplane that does not exist Oh, in the theatrical release, and we'll talk about that in chemistry
0: class. I wanted to go back. I know it's more of a chemistry question, but since you already hit on it, when okay. I saw the 340 down to 133 stat, mm-hmm. did you have any empathy? Did you feel anything when you saw that Herculean editing effort from so big down to so tight? I know Steve Martin,
1: when he first read the script, was like, John, this is, I think, 120 pages, and most comedies are 90 pages. He's like, you're obviously going to cut this down, right? And apparently, Hughes got a little bit salty about it and was like, no, we're shooting the whole thing. So He knew he was filming... A beast from the outset.
0: Again, the the gusto on uh, Hughes coming in, not having done a movie like this before, and Steve Martin, a god of comedy, 70s through the 80s, into the 90s, to be like, yo, we should cut this down. Hughes is like, no, 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 I know what I'm doing. What? Yeah. He's, yeah, come he's on, like, man.
1: Just, just do your lines, buddy. Just do your lines. So, <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Hughes clearly went into it, obviously, knowing he's going to film way more than he can include in this movie. That has to be clear. This isn't his first rodeo.
0: How dare he talks to King Tut and an Amigo that way. I'm, I'm just shocked.
1: That's right. It does pretty well at the box office. I mean, it's $30 million budget and it makes $50 million, which isn't super impressive. But I think this is one of those movies that has the long tail of success yeah. after the fact. Not yeah. a huge hit in the theater, but obviously, you know, a classic in video rental and having it come on television and mm-hmm, all that good mm-hmm. stuff. And eventually DVD and all the other conversions it's gone through. And it received critical acclaim at the time. They praised Hughes for branching out from team comedies, as we mentioned. Obviously, the performances of Candy and Martin were fantastic. They had good chemistry. Oh, fantastic chemistry. Yeah, the blending of genres was well regarded. The characters were robust. And it felt like a natural flow to the story. And the humor itself was actually good humor. And one critic, his name is Argen Olgen, which is a fantastic Argan Argen
0: Olgen? I know we just played D&D last night, but this is definitely a quest giver. Argan Olgen definitely tells you where to find the treasure.
1: It's lovely. And Argan says that, you know, and talking about the people in this movie, they're coarse, loud, and imperfect, but not without love. Much like they're real people in our lives. So I think Argan noticed a bit of the, you know, the reality, let's say, in this fictional tale. So that's really all I have. I wanted to keep history nice and brief, just the facts, ma'am, and then get us into chemistry where I know we have a ton of stuff to talk about. But before we do, I wanted to talk about from our own historical perspective. What is our first memories of watching the movie? So Ben, do you remember much about your first time taking this movie in?
0: I don't really. I think it falls into the thriller category of me. So this this came out right around Thanksgiving 87. So I was yeah. 3. I would have just turned 3. And so it's it's a movie way above my age for that right. time. So this is almost in the thriller world for me that it's, like, always been in the zeitgeist. And it's just, like, always a movie that back in the day was, like, on TNT or USA. Right. And you're flipping through and you would watch it always on around the holidays. There are scenes that we'll talk about later in chemistry that I'm like, oh, I was telling Fraggle Rock. That there's like a thing that happens in nostalgia where if one thing comes back that you hadn't thought about in 20 years, it's just a thread that gets pulled and everything suddenly comes back and all stuff. There are scenes in Planes, Trains, and Automobile that I'm like, oh my God, I haven't thought about that perfect scene in 20 plus years. Right. And And then it brought back all these great emotions. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way. I'm
1: older than you, but I remember kind of being on, but I don't think I actually sat down to watch it in earnest. I want to say I was in college. Okay. Like The first time I actually sat down and I think appreciated it for what it was, because much to your point, I was a kid. And while I loved John Candy and I thought Steve Martin was funny, it just didn't seem like a movie that appealed to my age group. So once I kind of got into that early adulthood, mm. late teen years, I think finally it was, okay, now I can sort of appreciate this. I'm driving, you know, I've done more travel and stuff like that. So it kind of felt like a little more relatable. Mm. Well- the bus has pulled up. Let's hop on and make our way to chemistry class. So good. All right, Ben, at the top of chemistry class, what I'd like to do is just talk about first, what made this movie work so well? Like why? what was the secret recipe, the secret sauce of its success? And I think a great place to start is with the cast. This is... Such a great cast, even though it really focuses on our two principals, Steve Martin as Neil Page and John Candy as Del Griffith. There are all these lovely characters that are sprinkled throughout, who just bring all sorts of these great, sometimes often small performances, but they they leave a great little mark for their brief time on the screen. Who's the first notable person that you recognize, Ben?
0: Okay, so what blew my mind is during our our October series, you know, I had never seen Friday the 13th before. And I was like, oh my God, Kevin Bacon is in this. And he's just like a baby.
1: Yeah, he's, he's a child. Yeah.
0: And so I'm so excited of all these like Kevin Bacon surprises I'm getting. It's like anyone's <laughs> delighted when you get bacon. It's like when you when you order a Bloody Mary and it comes with bacon in it at brunch, you're like, oh, bacon. <laughs> you're just excited it's there. You're excited. You didn't know it was going to be there. This movie was like the Baconator from Wendy's. It, was, it has all the bacon. <laughs> <laughs> so much bacon. So Steve Martin is, you know, going to run to the airport to try and catch the flight home. And who dares challenge him to the cab on the street but Kevin Bacon? And what I love about this scene, bid is that there's a thousand people
1: on this New York street, and they're the only two people vying for this cat Wait, what else that's is everybody so doing? Fun.
0: But just like the double-quarter pounder with cheese at Wendy's, we get bacon not once but twice!
1: Oh my gosh, that's true. Movie? There's secret bacon in this movie. See, It's stuck in
0: between the patties. Oh, Tell the listeners, if they're not aware, what is the secret bacon? The bacon has secretly been slipped in between the pillows. Um... <laughs> Later, uh, Steve Martin calls his wife when he's trying to get home, and in the background, she's watching a movie.
1: Played by Layla Robbins, I want to say. Thank you. Layla Robbins plays Susan Page.
0: She's watching a movie starring Kevin Bacon called She's Having a Baby, directed also by John Hughes.
1: And this movie hadn't even actually come out yet. So like it comes out in this movie in 1987, but She's Having a Baby doesn't come out in theaters until 1988. Yeah. So it's almost like a sneak preview of his next movie, which is funny.
0: It's this crazy Russian nesting doll thing of like, Hughes is going to sneak a Hughes movie inside a Hughes movie. But he's like, yo, you like bacon? I'm going to put bacon in your bacon movie. Like, There's so many layers. It's good. It's
1: like bacon wrapped bacon. This is amazing. Yes, no dates. John
0: Candy has a cameo in She's Having a Baby. that's right which is great
1: uh hughes is one of those directors who loves to work with the same people again and again obviously if you've seen a lot of hughes movies you'll recognize those recurring folks and in fact we have three ferris bueller's day off cast oh my god that's right that's
0: right well who
1: did you recognize
0: of course the most obvious and epic i felt like when he was gonna get on the microphone he was just gonna go bueller (laughs) <laughs> ben Stein is in this, not offering his money, but he's here.
1: That's true. He's an airport rep at the Wichita Airport. There's a funny Easter egg when he announces the flight's canceled. Ben, did you see what the destination is behind
0: him? I did actually catch this. I like, caught the little Easter egg. But yeah, the, the destination on the flight board behind him says... Nowhere. Nowhere. <laughs> nowhere. They're going nowhere.
1: It's so goofy. It's like...
0: And he's only in it for like 20 seconds. Like it's a just a quick cameo. Absolutely. There is another bit part a little longer than ben stein's true also a customer service agent that i think you would love to talk about so edie
1: mcclurk is the car rental agent we're going to talk about this scene in more detail a little bit later but if you know who she is you know who she is right she's ed rooney the principal in ferris bueller's day off she's his assistant and she's just got that like bubbly cheery voice and she's always usually got like a lot of makeup on and her big red hair and she plays the rental car agent who has to endure the litany of F-bombs that oh my God. Neil Page is launching at her when he's mad about his car, not being there to rent. But she has one of the best comebacks. And I do want to get to it. We'll save it. I'll save it. I won't uh, say it. No. Because there's also an alternate comeback for the TV version of this that I, oh. I want to talk about. Oh, So rounding out the trifecta Mm -hmm. is Lyman Ward. He plays John. He is Steve Martin. I'm sorry. He is Neil Page's business partner. So he's the one in the boardroom at the beginning. They're pitching the boards to the CEO or whoever. That's Ferris Bueller's dad. Yes, of course, of course. Tis Mr.
0: Bueller. There's two other great cameos I love here. There's the state trooper.
1: Michael McKean, the one, the only, the amazing Michael McKean. He plays funny,
0: he plays serious, he's such a great actor, I love him. He has a small part though. Remind me, because I saw his face, and I'm like, that guy! He's in everything! What would someone remember Michael McKean from?
1: Well, you'd certainly remember him from Clue. He's Mr. Green in Clue. Yes! If You Love Better Call Saul, the Breaking Bad spinoff, he plays Saul's brother. I can't remember the character's name, but he does a phenomenal job there.
0: Uh, this is Spinal Tap, A Mighty oh, yeah. Wind. Yes. And I know a show that you and I like a lot. He actually appeared on a whole bunch of X-Files episodes. (laughs) Really? Yeah, as Morris Fletcher. Ben, let's not bury the lead here. Oh, my God. As soon
1: as I saw this face, I was like, oh, my God. Ben's going to bring this person up because this person is in one of Ben's
0: favorite franchises, favorite movies.
1: Yeah. Who is this actor and character, Ben?
0: And not one of, I mean, favorite franchise, favorite pop culture property of all time. And I had no idea this person was going to show up in this movie, but I think it's at the second motel they check into, they go in, there's someone behind bulletproof glass is what we're to assume. And, you know, he's unshaven, he's, he's unkempt. And I was like, no. It can't be. And I, like, whip out IMD, you have to look. Indeed, titiz. Yes. Martin Ferrero. For those who don't know, Martin Ferrero plays the world-famous blood-sucking lawyer uh, in Jurassic Park.
1: I brought you here to defend me against these characters. The only one on my side is the blood-sucking
0: lawyer. Oh, it's such a great line. You may remember him as the individual who got eaten off of a toilet by a T-Rex. Oh, yes. It's, it's amazing.
1: Yeah, and, and there's lots of other great actors and characters in this, which we're going to talk about. But I do just want to also mention, some of you may have noticed a very young, with a very 80s bull cut <laughs> hairdo, Matthew Lawrence. Matthew yeah. Lawrence, of course, goes on to play many roles, but I remember him as the son in Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh, yeah, of course. He plays the character
0: Chris. I mean, how can I forget Whoa. that name? My namesake. So you could just see yourself there. Okay, that's amazing. That's right. Okay, so
1: like I said, there's lots of great cast members. I think in terms of what works really well for me, the performances of Steve and John are just so great for their characters. It's kind of like Steve Martin has such that like dry, kind of snarky delivery. He gets a little biting. We're going to talk about that. There's also just a funny physicality. (laughs) He's always falling over stuff and making wild gestures there's like the whole scene where he's like the car's not at the rental agency and the bus is driving away and he's trying to flag it down and he's just throwing things (laughs) and he's like just gesturing madly at the air and he's screaming and he's just like all of that physicality is great there's a one line where he's talking about Dell stealing his credit card and he's like you stole it (laughs) and like every motion goes along with the emphasis (laughs) of his words And just also, they both have a great physicality with the car seat that's being adjusted and they're zipping back and forth. And eventually, uh, Neil's face gets smashed into the windshield. There's just so much fun stuff like that I really enjoy about Steve's performance in general. And then John is just like a hard-on-your-sleeve,
0: lovable kind of a guy. You know, not only do they have wonderful chemistry between one another, they have good magnetism in the opposite directions together. Mm. But like, oh, that's a great way to put it. There's something else with them that they have great chemistry with the audience because I think we can all see parts of us in both of their characters. Mm. And that helps us connect to both of them that causes a really interesting struggle as a spectator of like in which scene who you're empathizing with and you can understand it. Again, this whole movie was famous because it's one of the most realistic depictions of the frustrations of travel. right? And all of us have experienced some part of this movie, <laughs> whether we want to admit it or not, On on whatever end. And it just makes it so real and relatable rather than watching you know, fantasy heroes or sci-fi heroes or things that are you know, in another dimension or era. You feel this and you can relate. And so that chemistry is so palpable and real. I love it.
1: That's a fantastic point. You know, When I think about the humor of this movie, a lot of it is coming from that relatable experience, right? We've all been on a flight that got delayed or canceled or rerouted. We've all been in some scenario where we've just had all these travel woes and you just want to get home. And they sell it so well in their performances. But also, like, strangely, the funny thing about the humor of this movie is it also allows it to go into the whimsical slapstick. And it's still okay. Like, it's very much grounded in that reality. But then you do have scenes where, like, one of my favorites is at the beginning of... The movie when they're in the airport, they're sitting across from each other and they make eye contact. And you can tell they recognize each other and they keep giving each other the look up yeah. and look down. Like, <laughs> yeah, how do I know, do I know you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Neil recognizes him because he remembers he opens the door and catches him in the cab that, you know, Dell stole. But the way that they do that in the movie is you just see John Candy sitting in the airport and they have just a single cab door placed in front of him. Yes. And he does like a, <gasps> and like, that is so goofy, but it serves the purpose very well. It's silly and slapstick, but it still is, it works. And then the same thing with like, when they're driving the wrong way down the highway and they go between the two semi trucks, it
0: could just be them yes. screaming and
1: freaking out, but they turn into
0: Skeletons, which makes no <laughs> totally sense. Totally breaks like the trying to be reality like grounded yeah. part of this movie.
1: And then it goes another step where John Candy's dressed in a devil's outfit, cackling madly at the <laughs> Neil character, <laughs> like he's trying right. to kill him. Like it takes you out of those moments of reality. But the humor still works, and I think it's to your point. It still it's that has the grounding, which then allows it to stray a bit. I never once sat there and was like, "Okay, this is silly. This is
0: ridiculous." I just kind of went with it. Did you feel the same way? The moment when they turn into skeletons is really shocking. Where I'm like, Wait a minute, "Hold on, what's going on?" But there's something about it being a John Hughes movie and it being mm. Steve Martin and John Candy that I just kind of allow it. Like my right. mind is like, "All right, this group of people, this would this is okay."
1: I do want to talk about, we have already mentioned a few scenes. There are just so many great moments in this movie that I think make it such a lovable classic. We've talked about a couple, but are there ones you want to revisit or new ones that you want to shout out for just being a wonderful little moment?
0: There's a scene in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles that unlocks so much joy. I think it's my favorite scene in the movie because it's just such unbridled happiness. And it's when they've got the rental car, they're driving down the road, Steve Martin has fallen asleep, John Candy's... uh, Driving by himself, smoking, trying to keep himself awake, and uh, "Mess Around" comes on.
1: Oh yes!
0: And he's like tickling the ivories on the dashboard, and Uh, he's singing the fake
1: saxophone.
0: No hands on the steering wheel.
1: Oh yeah! (laughs) Fake fake (laughs) saxophone. And
0: this is just uh, first of all, it's a great song, and second, like it's just such a fun, like unbridled joy. And this, it's the sort of thing where you know stand-up comedians are really good at this about telling a joke to the audience. That is a secret the audience all holds personally, but doesn't talk about. And then they all mm. relate to the stand-up comedian and they laugh. And this is like, we all screw around when we're alone in the car. We all sing, we all drum on the steering wheel, we do, yeah. like, we do goofy stuff, but nobody knows about it and it's our own little secret. And again, that's some of the brilliance and relatability of this movie. You see John Candy do this, and you're like, I do stuff like that. Ah! And it's it's great.
1: And, and that's what it also allows it to unwind into him flying down the on-ramp, coming back the exactly. wrong way, going through the two tractor trailers. And then the luggage goes flying, and eventually the car just catches fire. It's like that whole runner is so great. That whole car scene from start to finish is probably one of my favorite sections of the so movie. Good. So good, because it does start off with Steve almost getting run over when he insults the guy at the cabbie stand, and the guy just clocks him in the face. Yes, and he falls down into the street, and Dell almost runs him over. And then you have the scene where they're driving, and uh, Dell's fidgeting with the seat to try to get comfortable. It's
0: like, <laughs> Which is a joke that is really funny. It does not get old. And he's like, would I you like cut
1: that. it out? And like, it's one of the scenes actually that made Steve Martin want to do this movie. He said, this was one of the scenes that I was like, this will be funny. It was actually this and the uh, the other one I know we'll talk about soon, the rental car uh, yes. scene.
0: And I do want to th- throw out, it's really easy to miss in this whole scene. It's just, I mean, you know, I love little Easter eggs and fun facts and things like that. Yeah. And so the rental car has the exact same color palette as the Griswolds. Car in mm, Family Vacation. This the one. hideous green with a fake woody. Exactly, camel. which is very intentional. It's supposed to be a shout out to Family Vacation. So you it's know what's kind of so fun.
1: funny. Like John seems to like making these Frankenstein cars that don't actually exist. Because <laughs> if you look at the station wagon in Lampoon's Vacation, like it's yeah. not a real car. Yeah. he didn't just take a big Mercury Sedan. It's got like we- like too many headlights and all that goofy stuff. And this one has like ridiculous extra upgrades like the yeah. weird wire, wiry kind of like spoke yes. of hubcaps and then you've got like the luggage thing on the back and it had like the fake like the felty kind of roof on it oh i don't think God, it was a, great. it was like a faux convertible i don't think it was a real convertible no. Maybe it was. No, no, no. He just took every, like, upgrade feature and put it on this car, but in the hideous combination <laughs> possible. Uh,
0: okay, so, th- I mean, that's that's my standout mess around. I love that scene. And,
1: and I just want to, like, say that whole run with the car to them going the wrong way. And they're having that whole argument with the couple that's like, you're going the, the wrong, wrong way. way. And they're like, how do you know where they're we're going? Drunk. Like they're not <laughs> Yeah, you're that's drunk. That's ridiculous. After it's on fire, they'd somehow drive, again, this is the sort of taking out of reality, they somehow drive the burned out also of car. This pathetic thing on wheels. To the second motel where they have the whole scene with Martin Ferreira's character. And then that leads into probably one of my favorite, favorite scenes, which is, you know, they've gone through all this mess. They're kind of toward the end of their journey. And this is finally the point where they can break down and both have a laugh together about everything that's going on and you know it's like oh i probably got griddle marks on my butt the seat was so hot and they just had this very real moment of them having genuine laughter and being able to kind of finally strip away a lot of the frustration particularly that neil's been feeling for the movie and there's something about that one i really like are you talking about their globe
0: trotting together through the mini fridge
1: so they come in, and they're drinking the little mini bottles of booze.
0: That's actually pretty funny. Hey, where do you want to go next? Where do you want to take a trip to? Oh, man. Yeah, like, hey, and he's holy. like, let's go to Jamaica. Run, Yeah, that. Oh, Like, he's has yeah. the
1: jacket accent. Which is funny, because John Candy was later in Cool Runnings, where he coaches a Jamaican bobsled team. every
0: movie might be connected to this movie. I'm just, I'm throwing it out there.
1: I mean, Kevin Bacon's in it, so obviously there's obviously a lot of Obviously connects A lot of degrees. This is the Baconator. This is where it all starts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad the Baconator is what's happening here. Other great scenes.
0: Another Easter egg I don't want to gloss over, I'm going back a little bit to something you said, where you're talking, you love where they put the car door in the airport, so you recognize Steve, recognize John Candy. I do want to point out, John Candy is reading a book in that, that's not a real book, it's called The Canadian Mountain, uh, which John Candy, insisted. Which
1: looks kind of like a, a smutty Harlequin it's, romance it's novel, like kind little, of, it's uh, a little, uh, yeah, a little- What do you call uh,
0: those, like dime novels or something? Uh, Penny Dreadfuls? Penny Dreadfuls, maybe, maybe. It's definitely in the vein of like a, I don't know, maybe it's like Canadian Fifty Shades i I'll just Triiden. say it wouldn't have been on Reading Rainbow. They would not have, LaVar <laughs> li- 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 would not have read it. Jordi
1: LaForge would not have approved of Brain. that.
0: <laughs> but Candy insisted <laughs> to have it in there because he just, you know, being Canadian, he wanted a shout out to Canada. And I do love as a tribute to John Candy and to this movie and Deadpool 2, Ryan Reynolds is reading the same book, which I think is kind of cool. Oh, that's hilarious. I think it's a good connection. I like that. <laughs> the Canadian Mounted. You can't really find it on Amazon. Sorry, guys. Well, Ben, it's funny
1: you say that we're in our just previous topic, because John Candy did start a movie called Canadian
0: Bacon. More bacon. More Now more we're in the, the triple oh decker gosh. now.
1: This is so good. That's a great little find. Again, that's one of those things that you probably notice on like the second or third watch. You're like, yes. oh, wait,
0: what, what is he reading? Okay, so that wasn't a proper whole sequence. That was just a little Easter egg I wanted to say. I would say for for another scene I love is when they're in the St. Louis train station. And th- and there's this, this ongoing gag in the movie where, again, Steve Martin is biting the hand that feeds him. Because the after <laughs> they get robbed in the first hotel, the only way they're paying for food or hotel rooms is because John Candy keeps hawking these shower curtain rings. <laughs> Very
1: creatively, very, very creative. creatively.
0: And the St. Louis train station, first of all, while he's doing what I'm about to say, what I love is in the background of the train station are just freestanding arcade machines. Mm. And that's just something you don't see anymore You sure don't in society where like today you have to go to a dedicated like pinball arcade or a dedicated like retro gaming arcade center to like right. find that. But back in the day... There would be freestanding arcades of, you know, Asteroid or Pac Man or whatever was going on in airports, in train stations, in grocery stores, just out in the middle of the shopping mall. It was I like, remember we, we would gather? go to
1: this pizza shop near us just because they had, I think, like Street Fighter 2 in there. Like we just went to go play. What at else the are you going to do when
0: you're waiting three hours for your Pizza Hut pizza to show up to your oh, table? Oh, Pizza
1: Hut. Kids, if you're young. And you think Pizza Hut is only for delivery. It used to be no delivery. It was only sit down. Right. And there's nothing more torturous than being a young, hungry child sitting there for 45 minutes
0: smelling delicious pizza and not getting to eat it. It was awesome. But that's just the background. In the foreground is this great montage of John Candy selling these shower curtain rings as earrings, as earrings. to different people. <laughs> Uh, and he's he's totally making up like what collection they're from and who they are and the design. But what's- Oh yeah, Diane Sawyer, Walter Cronkite. Yes. Like He's just
1: throwing out all these famous but what's the babes. one he does
0: with the teenage girls? I think that's like the funniest one.
1: There's like these three young teenage girls at the very end of the montage. And he's like, you know what, ladies, I think it makes you look older. I think you could pass for 17, 18. And they all just like thrust the money right, right at him. Right, like, right. take my money. Shut up and take my money. Yes. And I think he says in the next scene that he got like over 100 bucks for all that. Really? Yeah, he's like, at least we're sitting on 100 beans for my brilliant idea.
0: Way to go there, buddy.
1: So you're right. Biting the hand that fell How dare
0: you, Martin? Now, there's still a couple epic scenes left. Oh, yeah.
1: Let's talk about this car rental scene. If you know this movie, you know this scene, of course. Again, one of the selling points to Steve Martin to star in it. This is where he's, as I mentioned earlier, gone to get his rental car. The car's just not in the space. He tries to go back to the bus that took him to this car lot because it's like way
0: far from the airport. There's a sound when the bus drops off Steve Martin. It's powering down sound. A hundred percent sounds like when the Millennium Falcon dies. Wait, that same noise that we heard in Harry and the Hendersons? And the Henderson's. It sounds Whoa. so freaking similar. Oh my I my to make gosh. a note of that. I missed it. I was like, planes, trains, and automobiles,
1: and Millennium Falcons. And probably one of my favorite things, Ben, I don't know if you noticed this. The voice of the bus driver... There's a white-legged town called Speed V5. Like that voice, it's probably the actor's actual voice, but it comes out of nowhere. And it's
0: one of those things where you're like, I love this voice and I don't know why. So it sounds like the famous disc jockey from like, he was huge in like the 70s, 80s, even in the 90s, Wolfman Jack. Oh. Had a verse <laughs> really? that was just like, "Yeah, what's going on, kids? We're down here, you with the Wolfman Jack, and up next we got David And I was like, "Yeah, that's the bus driver." Not the same guy. I could not find any evidence, but I was so excited.
1: So good. Anyway, sadly, that guy leaves Neil Page behind, and that's where he has that great, very physical fit. He has a fit, and then he has to like trudge his way back. And the music here is so good because
0: it's like, it's like. What would you call that? It's, it's not like really like, like windbreakers, like whipping on each other. <laughs> it's not really like DJ scratching
1: the record, but kind of is. It's like that thing. Oh, mm, Herbie Hancock. Do you remember the rocket? Oh, yeah. Like that part of it. Yeah. It's that, but it's also they've taken part of Steve Martin's dialogue and it's like you're messing with the wrong guy like that's actually part of the song it's really funny that was
0: it's got to be sort of like the wilhelm scream where there's got to be a name for that sound effect because it was in like exactly. every 80s comedy that was like it's not a quite a record scratch it's lighter and mm. softer than a record scratch back and forth in any kind of montage where they were like going somewhere trying to find somebody like
1: yeah like, yeah it
0: was in
1: everything anyway the funny part is you see him trudge all the way There, he's fallen down into the road. He's almost getting run over, walking across the uh, runway, and he he walks into the airport. He looks like a disaster. His clothes are all torn up, and he's got his tie wrapped around his ears for warmth. (laughs) Oh my God. The look on his face is the look of death. (laughs) Yes. He's at the end of his rope. And this is really, honestly, this is the point, even though he's had a few blowouts before, this is like the culminating explosion on this poor unassuming woman. And one of the best parts about this is that initially, when they shot this, she was just supposed to ignore him. And at one part, John Hughes goes to Edie and he's like, just make up some dialogue. Yeah. And what made it into the movie, which is brilliant, and she just kind of ad libbed it, she said, is she's talking to her sister about like turkey dinner and like, we got to plan oh, this. Right. And, like, you know, I can't cook. And she has a like trademark laugh I won't even try to do. It's impossible. And then Neil Page, Steve Martin's character, proceeds to drop. 18 F bombs and a 60 second scene. Which
0: is a record. It's amazing. Yes, this and this alone is what gave the movie an R rating. Which, again, I know, you know, we often try and talk to like an international audience in some of these things. And the idea that someone swearing with an F bomb for 18 times. Gives this movie an R when, like, you look at American cinema and will, you know, you'll kill a thousand people in ninety minutes. Oh yeah, you can Gruesome kill a lot of violence, people. Violence, nudity.
1: If you do killing the right way, you can easily slide in with the PG PG thirteen. Right, so people around the nuts. world are looking
0: at us like, really this this is what you're scared of people seeing? Our words. Oh, it's okay. so interesting. All right, ridiculous.
1: But you know, he just lays into her. You like wipe that effing dumb a smile off your rosy effing cheeks, and he just starts. He wants a new car right effie now.
0: And she's sort of like smugly smiling through it all. Oh, like my gosh, Her listening. reaction yeah, is
1: brilliant. The way she's kind of looking at him and she scratches her head and she's just sitting there taking it all in. So good. And then she's finally like, can I see your rental agreement? I threw it away.
0: Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh boy
1: what? Yark. Your-
0: F-ed. like she says the best mic drop to be fair, comeback. she doesn't say f she says the real word
1: no i obviously for this podcast censored all those things right, exactly but i just <laughs> love you she's so sweet
0: and then she gives like a 19th f right back is so good probably
1: one of the like highest standout scenes for sure it's not my favorite but it's definitely one of those like classic standouts that you associate with this movie Yeah, so good. And I think the one last one we want to talk about, Ben, is kind of going into my other part, like what made this movie work, because it is a lot of humor. It is some wacky madcap antics, but also it has some serious and dramatic moments to it. And I think you want to talk about the first hotel scene, right?
0: Right. So we we know tragedy loves comedy. They have to go hand in hand. It's the only way one works with the other one. And so, you know, there's a lot of drama, of course, on the road, planes, trains, and automobiles, but there's some stuff that happens in hotel rooms too. Actually, I don't remember how the beration starts. So they've gone through their
1: whole scenario of getting the last hotel room, you know, the whole mess up at the airport in Wichita. They're just trying to settle in at the hotel. Neil's trying to take a shower. He gets out. There's one tiny washcloth. Oh, thank you. Dell has used every single towel. They're all ruined. They're sopping wet. His socks are in the sink. And then he had spilled beer on the bed uh, because it's a vibrating bed. Which I have
0: a thousand questions about. Was a thing. Quarter activated (laughs) vibrating bed.
1: And then like they're trying to go to sleep and he starts clearing it. (laughs) Oh my God. Like he's clearing his sinuses in the most obnoxious way possible. And that's where he snaps pretty much for the first time.
0: Yeah, thank you. And this is the hardest part of the movie for me to watch. What is a delightful John Hughes adventure and comedy because Steve Martin – rips into Dell mm. and it is just this tirade of how annoying and awful Dell is and and, and maybe the, you know some people might interpret this movie differently based on who they relate to or who they've experienced with but like right Dell to me he's never actively cruel or maniacal or damaging to see Martin he's just oblivious right. he's right, just right, sort right. of like in his own world he's hopping along in life trying to you know make the best of it And Steve just rips into him. And you'll be able to quote this better than I can. But I think what's hard for me is an interview much later. You know, Steve Martin said uh, when he was talking about working with Candy and how he thought Candy was similar to Dell. He said, Mm. quote, well, he was a very sweet guy, very sweet and complicated. And so he was always friendly, always outgoing and, you know, funny and nice and polite. But I could tell he had a kind of a little broken heart inside of him. Mm. Tragically, we know down the road, you know, John Candy, while passing away from a heart attack, had all the signs of someone who suffered from depression. He was known to Mm. binge eat and to be a substance abuser. Heavy smoker. A very heavy smoker. He was always very concerned about his weight. And so to watch Steve Martin rip into this person who you know is struggling with a lot of – in real Mm. life, struggling with self-doubt and problems. Oh, it was so hard for me to swallow. But what are – they're not real words. They're actors, and what, is it, what did the script say? What are some of the things Martin says to Candy in this? I mean, I
1: don't want to do the whole tirade, but he's really just saying, like, your stories are boring, you have to choose things that are interesting or mildly amusing. You're a miracle. Your stories have none of that. They're not even amusing accidentally. <laughs> and he just goes into all of these scenarios, like how he's reading the vomit bag and he didn't get a clue, and like, oh, here's Dell to tell you some stories and a gun so you can blow your brains out, you'll thank me for it, and how he can tolerate any insurance seminar. And they say, how can you stand it? He's like, because I've been with Del Griffith. I can take anything. <laughs> no. And then again, in another great moment of physicality, he's like, you're like a Chatty Kathy doll. With the string, you pull and snap back. And he's like,
0: ah, ah, ah. And he just,
1: the movement he does when he says that line. And he's just tearing into John. And that's the thing, like, the two times he explodes, he explodes on these people who kind of don't deserve it. I mean, you yeah, know what I mean? Right, like, she didn't right. deserve it. You know, he's obviously a very, like, Like you said, he's a lovable guy who just doesn't realize how much airspace he's taking up and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But the look on John Candy's face (laughs) is (laughs) heart-wrenching. Devastating. The crazy thing is he's not really doing anything.
0: Yeah, right. He's
1: sitting still pretty much the entire time. He does so little as an actor, but my God, it conveys so much much. as a character. It's very hard to watch.
0: But what's beautiful is... In the real world, so many times when you have an emotional abuser like that, that the other person will just take it. There'll be a a punching bag Mm. in in a relationship like that. But Candy stands up for himself.
1: I mean, he sure does. And it's awesome. Yeah, it is. Because he's like, you want to hurt me? Go ahead and hurt me if you need to. I'm an easy target. He's like, I know I talk too much. I also listen too much. Mm. I could be a cold-hearted cynic like you, but I don't like to hurt people's feelings. Mm. I'm not changing. I like me. My wife likes me. My customers like me. Because I'm the real article. What you see is what you get.
0: You get it, Del.
1: You stand up for yourself. He did. He kind of set the record straight. And that deflates all of that tension in the air. Absolutely. Dell kind of gets into bed and does like a harumph, sort of like <laughs> he looks back over his shoulder and throws the covers over. <laughs> and then Neil kind of sheepishly walks to the bed and climbs in. And then to show that all has... <laughs> Return to some sense of normalcy. Oh my what God. happens next, Ben? Oh my God.
0: Well, for those of you, you know, uh, who are young at heart or still learning how to navigate the waters of relationships, never go to bed angry. It's just not good. Settle, settle everything before you climb into bed together. Sorry. So in the morning after they've had this fight, the camera's panning in from the, the warm sunlight coming in through the hotel room, and it pans over Dell laying on his side, and then you realize his arm is around... Steve Martin in there, and he's big spooning him on the they're bed. They're spooning;
1: they are totally spooning, and, yeah. and they're
0: sort of like cooing in the morning. Well, and the best part is "Back in
1: Baby's Arms" by Lou Harris Thank is you. the song yes. that's played. It's like the perfect yes. song. Del just sort of
0: like gently smooches Steve Martin's ear. It's like a nuzzle almost, right? It's like <laughs> a yeah. And Steve Martin wakes up to this, <laughs> and doesn't he? He just sort of like mutters like, um, "Why did like you? they don't move? You can see their eyes, and he's like."
1: Did you just kiss my ear? Right. He's like, yes. He's like, why are you holding my hand? Where's your other hand? Like, Between, two, Between pillows. two pillows. Those, Those aren't, aren't
0: pillows. pillows. Ah, they jump out of oh. bed. Terrified each other.
1: And they're all doing the, rah, rah, oh, right. you see that Bears game? Oh, they're going all the way. Right, like, right, exactly. They're trying to you know, muster over this tender moment they had up. together for a
0: second. <laughs> That's a great scene. It brings it back.
1: And, and just to kind of wrap this up, like there's just one other touching, dramatic, serious moment, which is when they are at the end, they finally get to Chicago and they're saying goodbye on the platform of the train. Neil gets on the train Del waves him off. And you see this, like, he physically is just kind of like, <sighs> you see him just sigh. And his, the tension goes out of his body, like, this is all done. The artifice is down. And he's sitting there thinking about Thanksgiving. He's picturing his wife, his children, the meal. And then he's thinking back on stuff that happened on the trip. And he's laughing. And then he comes to this moment where he's thinking about Del talking about his wife. And then it starts to unravel all of these other Ooh. moments that he talks about his wife. And you start to get the sense that something is amiss. So much so that he takes the train back to the station and finds Dell there. He's like, "What are you doing here?" And Dell's like, "I don't have a home.
0: Ugh, heartbreaking. Marie's been dead
1: for eight years." No. <laughs> and it's just this sad thing because he's been talking about his wife the whole time. Her picture is always by the bedside when he's at the hotel, and there's always these mentions of his wife. And you can see if you—it's almost a sixth sense moment when you go back and look at his reaction you can read it two ways. When you're first watching it, you can see it as like a sadness that he's not with her, that he misses her. And then in retrospect, you realize it's because there's a deep hole in his heart because she's been gone for nearly a decade, but you can tell he still cherishes her so much. And that's just a very, again, a very touching moment. It never gets sentimental or sappy. Like I feel like it lands in that right spot that I guess a, a John Hughes can only do. Yeah, I'd agree. Kind of like with Breakfast Club, right? There's a lot of jokes around Breakfast Club, but that's also a movie that has some very tense moments about oh my hardships gosh. the kids have had, and yeah, suicide and darkness, and you know they're able to kind of pull away from it.
0: Yeah, it, it is a masterful thing that Hughes is able to do is to, is to yeah. tiptoe into really heavy challenges that are universal that a lot of people face, but somehow bring it right back to comedy. Random, uh, right? right. It's it's an, it's an art. Ben, are there any things in this movie you think didn't work? Anything that just misses the mark? You know, there's there's some things from the comic to the more serious that I don't think work. I just want to warn out there the young, budding marketers out there who are excited <laughs> to go into the field of marketing. And maybe, maybe you were inspired to pursue marketing because you watched this movie all the way to the end, and you saw the sort of neighborhood that Steve Martin lives in, and the house he's able to <laughs> afford as a marketer. And I, I just want to tell you, you know, it's the same tragedy we see with kids who watch, like, pro football, and they want to be pro football players, and it's not 20 years later until they learn that, like— 1% of 1% of all athletes ever become professionals. Future marketers, I want to tell you, it's the same thing with marketing. 1% of 1% of marketers ever get to live in a neighborhood like that or own a house like that. that yeah, is, you're
1: the VP of marketing if you do that, right? I,
0: I mean, at the very <laughs> least, if not, you know, chief marketing officer for a Fortune 500. I mean, it is is—it is remarkable. So, you know, I just want to meet your expectations. We saw the same thing in a, you know, you see all the people talk about uh, Home Alone. What kind of job does that guy have to have that house, probably in a very similar neighborhood like we see here, with like 19 kids? What are you doing, oil baron? Remember in Big, the reason he got
1: that massive loft in New York City is because he became VP of marketing for the toy company. Yeah, that's true.
0: Which also is bananas. Set your high. <laughs> he was like a toy tester, right? Like originally, he was just a toy tester.
1: No, he was originally data analyst, like a data. Oh, that's uh, not right. Analyst. He was, was a data, data, uh, right. data entry person. Data entry person.
0: That's right. With that John Lovitz sharing the cubicle with him. screen. Great. great
1: point. Set your expectations correctly.
0: Uh, other points you think, age, dated, not working so well.
1: There's just a few things. You know, we talked about. There's a nearly four hour cut of this movie, and you can see the remnants of it, the vestigial pieces of it, and some of the. Pieces that don't quite line up well, that if you take a critical look at it, they just don't stand up to modern audiences as well as maybe it would have passed in the 80s. What a great example is like toward the end of the movie, and I think it's when they're getting on the tractor trailer to like finally get that last leg home. John Candy has a black eye. Oh, yeah, right. Dell has a black eye. And it's never explained. And there is a missing scene where you find out Dell didn't take out the insurance for the car that burned out, oh god. and they get pulled over by Michael McKean, the state trooper. Oh god. And Michael McKean said, like, there is a much longer discussion and scene there, but that's oh. part of it, and Neil socks Dell in the face and gives him a black eye because he didn't get the insurance.
0: So here's what I'd love to start the campaign with. There's, you know, a big thing that happened during the pandemic uh, was the Snyder Cut. The Justice League came out years ago and it was not very good. Mm. And Zack Snyder said, hey, there's a much better version, but it's like three and a half hours long. And when you cut out all the exposition and the backstory, yes, the movie doesn't make any sense anymore. So Zack Snyder, like the rest of humanity, is stuck at home during the pandemic. And so this, this whole great campaign starts online. Hey, if you're bored... Edit the Snyder Cut. Finish editing it and release it. And he does. Talk about like fan service and sway. And so I would like to start the Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. The Hughes Cut. I need the Hughes Hughes Cut. Cut. I want to see the four-hour Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. I need more story about these two guys. I mean,
1: sadly, Hughes has passed. But you know there are people attached to this. Oh, yeah. On the production side who could totally make it happen. Echoes of Hughes. 100%. Another minor one, but it's like if you sit and actually analyze it based on what we see in this movie, the passenger seat is an automatic adjustable yeah. seat, yeah, but yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. manual adjust driver's seat. Doesn't make any sense. But again, we've already mentioned it's a Frankenstein car. So, so maybe so that's just what you would expect from that kind of a thing. And again, these are minor, but I feel like these are things that in a modern movie they could fixed in post or like CG out the black eye or whatever. Yeah. The one that doesn't really hold up in terms of like a little cringy. Is it's a scene with the mom and the two kids, and they're talking, and she's like, "You know, your grandparents are coming over. Like, Grandpa Watt's going to give me noogies." And Matthew Lawrence's character is like, "Why don't I get noogies?" And the mom's like, "Cause you get Indian burns."
0: That is definitely a line that makes one cringe, right? If you don't know what that is, first of all, it was a common sort of phrase in the 80s and 90s where you would like put both hands around someone's, usually their forearm, and you twist back and forth really fast. And the friction makes your forearm burn. It turns your skin red.
1: Obviously a racist term that would not be hopefully used uh, these days.
0: It's kind of like saying sit Indian style. You don't say that anymore. That's not appropriate. You can say sit crisscross applesauce, but yeah, pretty strong racist undertones. You can't say that.
1: That's right. I do want to just end with a few things that did not make it into this movie. I mentioned everybody. This was almost four hours.
0: Like you said, more than half of the original cut didn't make it in. My goodness. There's more on the cutting room floor than there is in
1: the theatrical release. So one thing, if you do watch a made-for-TV version, they will often either dub different words in for some of those F-bombs in the car rental scene. Or there's a completely sort of altered version. I saw a couple different ones. I think it depends on who's airing it, where they take some of that out. And some of it sounds like a very bad edit where they just cut the F bombs out. Her reply at the end is different, where, you know, she asked for the rental agreement. I threw it away. Oh boy. Oh boy. What? And then and this version, she's like cackles and then she goes, You're screwed. You're screwed. It is You're ridiculous. screwed. Yeah. There's only one deleted scene that has survived that two hours that got chopped off of this movie. And if you have the DVD or the Blu-ray, you can see it. Of course you can go find these on YouTube nowadays. Sometimes in the television version, they'll put this scene back in and it's about five minutes long. Okay. They're on the plane eating dinner. Dell's talking all about which dinners he gets on which flights because they're the best. Like, oh, this airline to this location, this, this, this. And he's telling this whole story about a woman who used to work where they made the food and she cut her finger off and it got lost in food. Uh. And he's like... As far as I know, it was served on the Singapore route or something like that. And he just keeps talking and Neil gets more and more disgusted to the point where he basically doesn't want to eat any of his dinner. So there's this whole negotiation with the old guy sitting on the other side about, do you want his bun? Do you want the bun? Do you want the salad? And they're like taking all this stuff and they're like, finally, do you want the brownie? And Neil's like, no, I want the brownie. And then right as he says that, the woman in front of him her hair comes back over the seat and drapes completely over the brownie.
0: Oh, what? Gross. Disgusting. I don't. It's want to so disgusting. It. No, 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 no. no, 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 no. <laughs> Del looks
1: at him <laughs> and is like, you don't want that, do you? And he's like, no. And you see Del fish the little brownie tray. He sort of parts the hair, fishes it no, out. No, he doesn't. No. Breaks it in no. half and shares it with the old oh, guy. <laughs> that's disgusting. That's disgusting. It's kind of a funny scene, but what I... Actually, on a larger sense, what works for this movie so well is the pace is really good. There's not a lot of filler in this movie.
0: Yeah, I think that's a super good observation of actually what goes back to this, what makes this movie work so well is it's crazy that it's over an hour and a half, but it just keeps moving along. You know, they don't kill you with exposition or extra scenes that aren't necessary. It was a good final cut. They made the right call.
1: I will say for pacing, it is great. You have to imagine adding all this other stuff kind of bogs it down, but I kind of want to see what's on the cutting room. Like, even if it's not put back into the movie, I kind of want to see some of those scenes. Like, what did we miss? What's not there? Well, if you're like me, listeners, there's a great documentary, which we're going to put in the show notes. It's a little mini doc that someone on YouTube appears to do a lot of these mini docs for a lot of movies. And he went back and found the original script and talks about the scenes that are missing. And he also talks when I mentioned some of those remnants of the long cut of the movie that are still there, he talks about what would have gone there to fill it out. Yeah. So it's kind of cool. It's only like a little 20-minute video, but it's super awesome. And this is one of the ones that blew my mind. So at the end of the movie, Ben, you know, like they all go home and he's introducing Del to his family. The Everyone's coming around and his wife is upstairs crying, right? Yeah. And she finally comes to the stairs and it's this weird thing where she's very standoffish about embracing him and they're staring at each other and they're looking and she slowly comes down the stairs and you're like, why is she being so reticent to like Mm. give him a hug? He made it. And he's like, I want to introduce you to Del Griffith. She's like, oh, Mr. Griffith. And then they finally, like, hug, and it's this big moment. And you feel like it's charged with a weird energy. The reason is, what's cut out of this movie is there's a whole subplot where she thinks Neil is cheating on her. (gasps) And that Del, in air quotes, is a woman that that he's been shacking up with. No. And so, like, remember at one point in the movie where... She's like, what does a a delay and wherever have to do with Wichita? And she sits up and she's like, what's going on, Neil? When she asks that question, it's also charged with more of this. She's getting suspicious that he's not being faithful to their marriage. So... That whole subtext obviously is taken out. But again, you see those little bits. And as soon as I saw that in this little mini doc, I was like, oh my God, that makes so much sense. Totally. That scene reads so differently now. And you're like, okay, now the weird energy is explained." It's all coming together. Yeah. Uh,
0: okay. No, I get that. That makes sense. God, I do want to see the long cut though now. I kind of
1: do too. There's just a few other things I want to talk about that didn't make it in here. So the, the theme song of this movie was supposed to be done by Elton John was supposed to write a the theme the, song what for what? this. I cannot imagine this what? movie with Elton what? John singing, um, I'm on the road. I'm on right, the road. Right, right,
0: right. It's a little bit funny. This hand between my pillows. <laughs> I can't even imagine it. That's ridiculous. Anyway, the short of it was Elton
1: John and lyricist Gary Osborne were supposed to do the theme song. Paramount and Polygram, which was Elton's record company, could not agree on who had the rights to it. So, Mm. dunzo.
0: Wow. The next time I watch... Planes, trains, and automobiles. I'm gonna yeah. put an Elton John record on in the background, just real quiet, and <laughs> just
1: just see how it goes. Just see I how think it goes. it's like was it Pink Floyd? If you play Dark Side of the Moon, it maps directly. Like to if Wizard you play Elton, right. Yeah, right. If you play
0: Elton John, it'll map directly to. Coincidentally, uh, to this. if you do Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road along with planes, trains, and automobiles, oh. it lines up perfectly. It's really interesting.
1: Again, everything's connected. Everybody, yeah, everything's The minute connected. they take
0: off from the, the landing strip, they play. It plays Rocket Man. It's amazing. It yeah. really is phenomenal.
1: Speaking of connections, Ben, yes. I have one more set of casting things to talk about. Oh, okay. Let's talk about who's not in this movie. So, we know, of course, Steve Martin plays Neil Page. Do you know who else was in consideration for that role?
0: Who could I see in that role? I would have loved to see. Um, there's two people I would love to see in that role Alec Baldwin. All right. In that role would have been fun, but you would need a different casting for John Candy. And actually, you know who I would really love in that role? Rick Moranis. Would have been fun in Steve Martin's role. I Are think you joking? No, I think I can see Rick Moranis in that role. He was considered for the role. Was he really? Wait, you didn't know that? I swear to God I didn't know that. Oh, I thought you may have read that. No, he would have been delightful in that role. Okay,
1: so Rick Moranis was actually considered
0: for the Neil Page character. What? This is like when you when you guessed on the nose last episode of yeah. 10,000 <laughs> Fraggles. It was insane. <laughs> You're like, you looked it up. I'm like, no, yeah. I didn't, I swear. Oh, wow, look at that.
1: Another Canadian. Tom Hanks was also in consideration, which Mm. I can't see that one, but he was filming big. And I think that worked out well for everybody.
0: Yeah. And I don't think Tom Hanks has like the right kind of comedic rage that Steve Martin has.
1: He doesn't have the bite, right? There's like a bite or like a
0: snarkiness maybe or like a cynicism. Even like something like Road to Perdition. Tom Hanks is still too soft like he,
1: oh he was too nice for that movie right. like he tried to play a mean gangster and I was right. like oh Tom, he, he's just such not sharp
0: enough for it only Martin I can agree. pull that
1: off now who do you think was also in consideration for Del Griffith
0: who could have pulled off Del sweet funny heartbroken unawares of what he is doing could Dan Aykroyd it? no maybe not Aykroyd Who's around then, uh, man? I don't know. Candy was so good in that role. He's so iconic as Dell.
1: Another person in consideration was John Travolta.
0: No. no, no, terrible. No. Also, remember
1: this is around the time Big was being filmed, and John Travolta was up for consideration in that movie. And why was he not chosen? There was a term about John at this time. No, this he... poor guy can't get no. Breaks. He was toxic, right? He was considered box office poison. Exactly, box office. This poor guy because of
0: Grease two or something. Something like that. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, It didn't go over so well. So he's still in the the poison penalty box. Apparently, ugh. I I just don't see him for this role either. And
0: then John Goodman was
1: also being considered.
0: Goodman almost has too much heart for the role of Dell. Like Goodman is such an incredible actor. Yeah, I just, I don't think John has the,
1: oh, sorry, there's too many Johns. I don't think Goodman has the vulnerability that Candy does yeah, in the same way that kind of pulls off that's the, a good yeah, thing to put it. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Ben, I think it's time we think about lunch. Uh, yeah, because we've talked enough about bacon that I am freaking starving. Oh my God. Let's see if we can hail a cab, yeah. grab a bite, and then get to contemporary culture on time to talk about what came from this movie. What do you say? Lunch is on me. I have $2 in a Casio. (laughs) We're going to eat like kings. (laughs) Like, Like kings. Let's do it.
0: During holiday travel, some people get delirious. Some get delayed. And some get <laughs> Del Griffin. American light and fixture, director of sales, shower curtain ring division. Neil Page got all three. I was on my way home to spend a nice holiday with my family. Instead, I'm in a motel bed with a stranger. So instead of Thanksgiving with his family, he's spending three days with the turkey. T-ball! The Clams just whistling down the road. Flintstones meet the Flintstones and the Martin Family.
1: Paramount Pictures presents. Will oh! Steve Martin. Ever been to Hawaii? Yeah. Did you see Don Ho huh, while you were there?
0: See the second show, that's the best one. Is that right? Yeah.
1: John Candy. Why are you holding my hand? Where's your other hand? Between two pillows. Those are pillows. Ah! In a new film by John Hughes. Plane, ah! trains, and automobiles. See that Bears game last week? Yeah, Hello Game. a Game. So it turns out you can't get a lot with $2 in the Casio. So we had to eat the watch bands. It was not <laughs> so appetizing, but I was just chewing on them like it was I've got jerky my iron. or something. It's good. I
0: feel good. <laughs> I feel very healthy.
1: Okay, so topic contemporary culture. There's a few things that are direct. Relations to this movie. And then I want to talk about a few other things that I think are related, including your question earlier, which is have there ever been any other good Thanksgiving movies? Yeah, I
0: do want to get back to that.
1: So, most importantly, everybody, in production as we speak is a Planes, Trains, and Automobiles remake. Remake? Starring Will Smith and Kevin Hart. Thoughts? I think I can see it actually. I think Will would play the more straight-laced, like, the Neil character, Oh, right? for sure
0: he's going to be the Neil character. And
1: Kevin, of course, would be the more boisterous, a little bit annoying-to-be-around, fun, jovial, chatty one.
0: I really love Kevin Hart, especially, like, in the Jumanji reboots. I think he's oh. a lot of fun in the Jumanji movies. He's, he's oh, I haven't great. I have seen that one. I like Kevin Hart. I like Will and Kevin. I'm just skeptical of reboots in general. I
1: cannot think yeah. of an 80s movie they've rebooted that I thought was good or worthy mm-hmm. when they're trying to chase the magic of a thing that's hard to recapture. Yep, yep. But maybe this is the one that will break out and be successful. I'll be curious. I'm super curious. I, I like both of these actors, so we'll see. Uh maybe it'll come out in 2022. We'll talk about it as a follow-up in a later we'll re- episode we'll of Eye For sure. Also there's a couple references to the John Candy speech I mentioned about the, you know, I like me, my customers like me, all that was parodied in an episode of Family Guy called Baby Not On Board in season seven. I don't know for sure, but I'm going to guess that was said by Peter Griffin.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. I, weirdly enough, also have a Family Guy tie-in, which I never, but John Cady at some point in Plane Strange and Automobile, said something like, nothing grinds my gears like X, yeah. Y, and Z or something like that. And in some – I remember in some Family Guy episode where Peter Griffin has like a, a radio show or a TV show called uh, Grind My Gears or something. And it's always about like, uh, you know what really grinds my gears? And it's like – he's talking, <laughs> and I was like, oh, John Candy. Like uh, that was the tie-in from John Candy in that. Well, that's right. He says nothing
1: grinds my gears more than a chowderhead who doesn't know when to keep his trap shut or something Thank like you. that. Thank you. There you go. But he keeps talking as he's talking Definitely about talking. people. Yeah, it's so funny. For sure. One other one. So in 2017, there was a Nespresso commercial featuring George. George Clooney, and he's hitching a ride with several movie characters. So he's writing with Kermit and Fozzie from The Muppet Movie. He's so writing good. with Janet Leigh from Psycho, Burt Reynolds from Smoking the Bandit.
0: Oh, nice. And
1: with John Candy from Playing Strange Automobiles. And the scene, I think, where he's singing and dancing to mess around.
0: Really? Oh.
1: They have Clooney, like, imposed into all of those scenes. It's pretty funny. Oh, that's good. I like that. So those are the only direct references I could find. Did you catch anything I missed?
0: No, I don't have any direct references. And and this is definitely not an inspiration. You know, in contemporary culture, we often talk about, like, what did this thing influence going forward? And I don't right. think this inspired it. But I see a parallel. And you actually mentioned this, which is great in history. Like, Hughes reuses actors a lot in a lot of his yeah. different properties. And I'm not saying these writers or directors did that because Hughes did it. But I see something similar, like with Adam Sandler. He right. often has, like, most of the same core actors that he likes. And sometimes they're playing the same character once in a while. But he does the same. I think Taika Waititi does it. The Coen brothers do it a lot. The Coen, Yeah, the, the, thank you. So I'm not saying yeah. they get it from Hughes, but, like, Hughes was big in that, too, you know, brings back his all-stars that he loves working with. And I get it. You want to bring back the co-workers you like working with, and you know what you can get out of them. I get it. Yeah, similarly, I
1: was trying to think of movies that are in the same vein as this, that again, I don't think are directly a reference to it, but the fact that Planes, Trains, and Automobiles was successful could have encouraged people to write similar kinds of movies. The closest one I could think of was, I never saw it, but do you remember the movie Identity Theft with Jason Bateman and Melissa McCarthy?
0: It rings a bell, but I also have not seen it.
1: So again, it's another kind of odd couple scenario where I think she tries to steal his identity and they end up on like a road trip across the country together, antics ensue. So that's one I could think of. The Hangover is vaguely reminiscent. It's not really a road movie, but it's kind of the, the antics that ensue when these friends come together. Again, it's a loose connection, but it feels in the same uh, spiritual universe, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, you're slowly, intentionally or not, tiptoeing into the big question I have of this episode. Okay, which is, what is this movie? To me, it seems so unique in so many ways, but is largely about travel. It's just the antics that happen along a trip. And I was trying to think of another movie that is just about the antics that happen along travel, and I, I you know, the closest I could get was Snowpiercer. I think was the best <laughs> I could do in the train section. No, but I couldn't think of anything, and it comes down to this question, and I'm just going to pause it a little bit, but I think you have a lot more sincere thought around this, so I'll just tee it up for you. I often hear, like, you know, there's so many movies to watch about summer, and there's so many Halloween movies, and there's so many Christmas movies, but, like, this seems to be the only Thanksgiving movie that I hear people we'll talk about. And I will pause it, and I'm not, I don't have a strong line in the sand, but Thanksgiving is only briefly mentioned in the beginning. And at the end, they get home for Thanksgiving meal. But the movie is largely about travel. And I I get it's sort of the same kind of diehard argument. But at least there's like, you know, ho, 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 now I have a machine gun. There's a giant teddy bear that's a Christmas present. You know, there's there's several Christmas references throughout the movie. But not so much in plain strains. So what is this movie? And defend that it is a Thanksgiving movie. Well,
1: I, I think it's like I said at the top. It's a buddy comedy meets a road trip movie
0: oh yeah road trip why did not we say road trip euro trip or road trip maybe that's maybe that's I mean, there is the, yeah there is the movie
1: the tom green movie road trip yeah i mean the whole thing is the MacGuffin, if you will is the thing that's driving the entire movie is i need to get home for thanksgiving yeah i yeah. really don't know what, what else there is to say about that i mean candy makes a reference like we're gonna be having our turkey roll right here because we're not gonna make it home in time the daughter is having a play about thanksgiving that oh, he misses yeah.
0: oh right okay good call
1: they're singing that Thanksgiving song. Apparently, it's a thing. But they're singing the Thanksgiving song on the bus. I think it's referenced enough. Okay. It's obviously, I'm going to call it a Thanksgiving movie. To your question, Ben, did you ever see a lovely little movie called Home for the Holidays starring Holly Hunter, Robert Downey Jr., and Steve Gutenberg Whoa. Three I've, very 80s I'm names. I'm not sure I have. Now, it technically takes place during both Thanksgiving and Christmas. It's a a of movie. It's a great movie about, like, siblings and family and all that kind of stuff. Fantastic movie. Home for the Holidays. I think it's early 90s.
0: Oh, this looks fun.
1: Uh, Grumpy Old Men. Oh, yeah. Also takes place during Thanksgiving and Christmas. Oh. Walter Matthau, Jack Lemmon, and Margaret, Daryl Hannah, lots of great folks in that movie. Ben, there is an animated movie called Charlie Brown Thanksgiving. Oh, well, there you go. And then more recently, there's another animated one called Free Birds, which I had never heard of, but apparently voice uh, actors include Owen Wilson, Woody Harrelson,
0: and Amy Poehler. Okay, so Free Birds. I was trying to think, like, oh, there's another Thanksgiving movie. It's Turkey Run. And then I thought about it a little longer. I was like, no, it's called Chicken Run. Oh, uh. <laughs> it's like the uh, Wallace and Gromit sort of claymation, and they're like a bunch of chip. But I thought it was a turkey movie.
1: You had me for a minute. I was like, oh yeah, Turkey Run. I, no, yeah, no. I was totally wrong. Yeah, I was an got idiot. it mixed up. Ugh. The last one I want to bring up is a movie that is purely about Thanksgiving called Pieces of April. This is a beautiful, delightful little indie flick starring Katie Holmes, Oliver Platt, and Patricia Clarkson. It's a fantastic movie. I love it so much. Can't recommend it enough, but Pieces Pieces of April April. is a great one. and it's It's about a young woman who's trying to reconnect with her family, and she's going to be hosting Thanksgiving in her tiny little New York apartment. But there's all of this like family stuff that comes up. And anyway, it's just, it's a very well-acted, ah, well-written little movie. Pieces just lovely. of April. Last and most certainly not least, Killing. Stop a it. A movie no. No. about a possessed turkey. I want to watch this right now. When we talked about slasher films, I joked that there's an April Fool's slasher film, right? It's about April Fool's. There's also Leprechaun, which is about ostensibly, St. Patrick's Day. sure, And now we have Thanksgiving.
0: I 100% want to watch Thanksgiving. The other thing
1: I just want to mention uh, for contemporary culture is, and you mentioned this earlier, is the unfortunate early passing of John Candy. Yeah, right, right. A heart attack in 1994. I, I will tell you, I think we all have a celebrity who's passed away that really hits us. Ugh. And I can say this is truly the one, you know, 94, I was in, I think, ninth grade. This is really the first celebrity passing, and one of the few I can even think of that really just was a punch to the heart. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remembered John, Uncle Buck's baseballs, great outdoors. Yeah. Even on small parts. Like He, was a, he had a small part in Little Shop of Horrors and Home Alone, and just, a, again, just a very magical, genuine, nice, funny guy. You know, and the vulnerability, I kind of felt like I had a shared bit of that as a kid. Um, and not feeling like I fit in. And so that one really, yeah, that really hit me.
0: I mean, certainly candy. And again, you know, being young at the time, it was sort of one of those, it goes back to unsolved mysteries where you're like, bad things happen to kids and you're like, Mm. wonderful comedians can die. Yeah, Like, I think that was like a, uh, that was a big hit that we can lose celebrities like that. Right. Right. I know in our household, the hardest for me was Robin Williams because he's Mm -hmm. my senior year quote (laughs) in my yearbook. I love yeah. Rob Williams. And uh, Anthony Bourdain was my wife's. So that hit that hit mm. her really hard was Bourdain. That's hard. Yeah. So
1: it really took a toll on John Hughes as well. And somebody was quoted as saying that they thought Hughes would have directed more films had Candy lived.
0: Oh, God.
1: Hughes kind of retires from the public eye in the early 90s. He does continue to write and produce movies up until his death. He also died of a heart attack in 2009. Yeah. I think he was only in his fifties, so another person who really died, you know, before his time, but both of them left such a huge impact on <gasps> pop culture in their time and especially on the eighties.
0: We've lost so many creatives who brought so much joy with that had so much road ahead to do so much more good. Uh yeah. you know, take care of yourself. If you've got people in your life that you love that aren't, help take care of them. Reach out to them. Mm. So many of these people, you know, we hear these stories, uh, you know, around Belushi and Candy, where people have, like, seen, like, seen what they were doing. Uh, Farley, Chris Farley. Yeah. And friends didn't speak up and try and, like, step in. And we lost incredible people who brought joy to all of us. So, uh, you know, be there for those you love and take care of yourself. Absolutely. Like a car that is falling off its wheels, we must now weigh how long this is going to take to fall off the wheels. And can we go to math class and see... How uh, how these vehicles hold out today?
1: Well, fortunately, Ben, I have chartered two crates in the back of a refrigerated milk
0: truck. Well, thank God. So
1: pack a sweater, buddy. Let's get to Math <laughs> Boss. Okay, Ben, what are your thoughts? What is your assessment? What is your mathematical equation? I'm trying to think of a transportation math Okay, if one train left Wichita,
0: one train left New York at 5 (laughs) p.m., how good would this movie be? Well, I'm not alone in my opinion. Roger Ebert gave it four out of four stars and included it in his list of great movies. He just had this list that he called great movies. And he said, he came out and said he watched it almost every Thanksgiving. I love it. And your timing was amazing on picking this topic maybe like a week after you picked this topic. So, Neri, three weeks ago, Screen Rant came out with an article of like the top 10 reasons why planes, trains, and automobiles is still awesome today. Oh, nice. And before I even read that, after I watched the movie, I had all these, you know, my notes of, like, why well, I think this movie is great. And I went and read Screen Rant, and I have nothing to add to the Screen Rant thing. It's exactly what I was thinking. So I won't go through all the reasons. Just look up Screen Rant plus Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. It's a very recent article. But I think it's a great movie. It is very fu- It's, like, the perfect balance of heartwarming and comedy. It is such real, like, human interactions that go on, like, very like i said earlier like it is a really good portrayal of the ups and downs of travel that just like a lot of us can relate to mm. the characters have good arcs of growth and it's all like boiled down in a nice little like you said like 93 minute package it just rolls right through and it just keeps going there's not really like there weren't any scenes i can remember that i'm like oh my god come on this is just exposition we're like oh my god i get it right he's in marketing right. i get it like no the movie just goes it's like a non Amtrak train it just keeps running uh, so I think it's great I think you've swayed me that it is a little more Thanksgivingy than I gave it credit uh, and I, I you know I think it is I, I would saddle up with Roger Ebert and say spin this one up every November Awesome yourself
1: yeah this is a classic Hughes movie right and like we mentioned earlier it did show that Hughes could do more than just teen comedies and do them well-hmm. Mm-hmm. Steve and John shine as the leads. It's full of heart. It's full of hilarity. And it never gets too sentimental, but it does tug at the feels, I think, in all the right places. Yeah. It has a few blemishes, which I did mention, that don't age well for modern audiences. But thankfully, they are few and far between, especially in comparison that there are so many standout scenes, like the ones that we mentioned. And just talking about them doesn't do it justice. So just after this podcast is over, just go rewatch it. You'll thank us for it. Again, the humor is just so on point. And I think also, because you know I like a little lesson, I think it reminds us of the importance of compassion and caring for those imperfect, flawed people in our lives.
0: <laughs> Wait, why are you winking so hard at me in the zoom screen right now? Do <clears throat> you have something in your eye? What's what's going on? Uh, over no, there? no, 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 okay. no. Sorry, You're nothing. It. Sorry, You're sorry, okay. sorry. I'm okay, it's fine, alright.
1: Those lovely, imperfect, flawed people in our lives who frustrate us maddeningly and somehow enrich us in the process. A lot of winking
0: going on. This is really yeah, weird. So much winking. Uh, <laughs> ben, Ben,
1: thank yeah. you for joining me. It was our great. journey seems complete, but like any classical hero's adventure, we learn there is a secret payoff. Oh, yeah. The scene after the end credits, if you will, ah. which this movie has. Do you know that?
0: Did no, you what stick is Stick around
1: to the... No, I missed it. So the executive is
0: still looking at the boards. Hmm. No. <sighs> like he's still trying
1: to think on the boards. Yeah, there's like a little oh, just scene where he's still doing that. That's Hilarious. a good
0: little addition. I like that.
1: Our in credit scene, of course, is you're going to tell us what wonderful topic
0: we'll be exploring in the next episode of 80's of High. 80's High. So like planes, trains, and automobiles are a triumvirate to make that movie happen. There were mm. three influences that helped me come up with next week's topic okay the first rule of threes everybody rule of threes and i will throw out that i did sing three is a magic number in high school when we did schoolhouse rocks so i I totally get the threes obviously we are getting into the holiday season and all around the world for time immemorial sweet little children are writing wish lists to moms and dads friends and family siblings and make-believe benefactors working hard at the polls (laughs) <laughs> and so it is a time of the wish list. second i was struggling in our previous episode trying to think what awesome thing did the fraggles inspire what came next mm. in the magic and art and science of puppet storytelling and then a third shoe dropped okay which was one of your favorite animals is a bear okay next time on 80s high I invite you, listeners, to come dream with me tonight and explore one of the top-selling toys of the Christmas season, Teddy Ruxpin. Oh, my God. (gasps) I'm going to have nightmares. Oh, my God. (laughs) Grab your favorite little blanket, snuggle up with your stuffed animal, and pop a cassette tape in his back, because he's got a story for you with Teddy Ruxpin next time on 80s High.
1: Thanks everyone for listening to 80s High Podcast by Ben and Chris. Our theme song is by Greg Reed at gregreedmusic.com with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts to help spread the rumor. radical! Stay radical!